the year was 1752, and the province, the State House for Pennsylvania, had requested that a bell be struck. And so it was in England that a 2,080-pound bell was made in the year 1752 for the price of $300 and shipped to the new American colonies. It arrived in Philadelphia, and upon its first ringing, cracked. And thus, in the city of Philadelphia, the bell was recast in the year 1753, and thereafter was used until one very famous day, on July 8, 1776, that bell was rung to call the citizens roundabout together for the announcement that the leaders of the American colonies had adopted the declaration of their independence from Great Britain. Upon that bell were inscribed these words from Leviticus 25, verse 10. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. And because of that biblical inscription, it has come to be known as the Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell was rung on each anniversary of the announcement of our American independence every year until the year 1835, when it again broke at the funeral of Chief Justice John Marshall. Any of you who have visited the city of Philadelphia or have had the um, good fortune or misfortune to live in the city of Philadelphia and to go there now know that the Liberty Bell is a treasured relic of American freedom and it sits in Independence Hall, Philadelphia. This morning I want us to consider the inscription upon the Liberty Bell. I want us to consider what theology it was that lied behind the proclamation of liberty throughout the land. For this weekend, we enjoy, as American citizens, our Declaration of Independence, the anniversary of its signing, and the celebration of our own freedom as Americans. I said that inscription came from Leviticus 25, and so turn in your Bibles, please, to the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus. It's a rather long chapter, but I wish to read it in its entirety. Leviticus 25. Hear now the word of God. And Jehovah spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto Jehovah. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruits thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath unto Jehovah. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard, that which groweth of itself of thy harvest thou shalt not reap, and the grapes of thy undressed vine thou shalt not gather. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And the Sabbath of the land shall be for food for you, for thee, and for thy servant, and for thy maid, and for thy hired servant, and for thy stranger who sojourn with thee, and for thy cattle, and for the beasts that are in thy land, shall all the increase thereof be for food. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. And there shall be unto thee the days of seven Sabbaths of years, even forty and nine years. Then shalt thou send abroad the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. In the day of atonement shall ye send abroad the trumpet throughout all your land. 
and ye shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. Ye shall not sow, neither reap that which grows of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy unto you. Ye shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In this year of jubilee, ye shall return every man unto his possession. And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buy thy neighbor's hand, ye shall not wrong one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according unto the number of years of the crops, he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of the years, thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the fewness of the years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. For the number of the crops doth he sell unto thee. And ye shall not wrong one another, but thou shalt fear thy God, for I am Jehovah your God. Wherefore ye shall do my statutes, and keep mine ordinances, and do them, and ye shall dwell in the land in safety, and in the land shall yield its fruit, and ye shall eat your full, and dwell therein in safety. And if ye shall say, What shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow, nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for the three years. And ye shall sow the eighth year, and eat of the fruits the old store. Until the ninth year, until its fruits come in, ye shall eat the old store. And the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine, and ye are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession ye shall grant a redemption for the land. If thy brother be waxed poor and sell some of his possession, then shall his kinsman that is next unto him come, and shall redeem that which is his brother has sold. And if a man hath no one to redeem it, and he be waxed rich and find sufficient to redeem it. Then let him reckon the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it. And he shall return unto his possession. But if he not be able to get it back for himself, then that which he hath sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of jubilee. And in the jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. And if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold, for a full year shall he have the right of redemption. And if it be not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the walled city shall be made sure in perpetuity to him that bought it. Throughout his generations it shall not go out in the jubilee. But the houses of the villages which have no wall round about them shall be reckoned with the fields of the country. They may be redeemed, and they shall go out in the jubilee. Nevertheless, the cities of the Levites, the houses of the cities of their possession, may the Levites redeem at any time. And if one of the Levites redeem, then the house that was sold in the city of his possession shall go out in the jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the field of the suburbs of their cities may not be sold, for it is their perpetual possession. And if thy brother be waxed poor and his hand fail with thee, then thou shalt uphold him. As a stranger and a sojourner shall he live with thee. Take thou no interest of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon interest, nor give him thy victus for increase. I am Jehovah your God, who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, to give you the land of Canaan, and to be your God. And if thy brother be waxed poor with thee, and sell himself unto thee, thou shalt not make him to serve as a bondservant. As a hired servant and as a sojourner, he shall be with thee. He shall serve 
with thee until the year of Jubilee. Then shall he go out from thee, he and his children with him, and he shall return unto his own family, and unto the possession of his father shall he return. For they are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as bondmen. Thou shalt not rule over him with rigor, but shalt fear thy God. And as for thy bondmen and thy bondmaids, whom thou shalt have of the nations that are round about you, and of them shall ye buy bondmen and bondmaids. Moreover, of the children of the strangers that sojourn among you, of them shall ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which you have begotten in the land, and they shall be your possession. And ye shall make them an inheritance for your children after you to hold for a possession. Of them shall ye take your bondmen forever. For over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule one over another with rigor. And if a stranger or a sojourner be waxed uh, with thee, be waxed rich, and thy brother be waxed poor beside him, and sell himself unto the stranger or sojourner with thee, or to the stock of the stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brethren may redeem him, or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him. Or if he be waxed rich, he may redeem himself. And he shall reckon with him that bought him from the year that he sold him to him unto the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall be according unto the number of years, according to the time of a hired servant shall he be with him. If there be yet many years, according unto them, he shall give back the price of his redemption out of the money that he hath bought for. And if there remain but few years unto the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him according unto his years, shall he give back the price of his redemption. As a servant hired year by year shall he be with him, he shall not rule with rigor over him in his sight. And if he be not redeemed by these means, then he shall go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am Jehovah your God. And thus far the reading of God's word. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. The implications were stunning. Liberty meant slaves went free. Men returned to their family possessions. Even houses in walled cities could be bought back. The cattle were to be made free to eat openly of the increase of the land. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof. No slavery, no debt, no oppression. A great time of freedom. And thus the year of Jubilee. It is the inscription on the Liberty Bell that we find here in Leviticus 25. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. And I think our initial impression when we contemplate that fact is that probably... The early Americans who had that bell struck were just taking advantage of a verse in the Bible that said what they wanted to say themselves. I mean, after all, if you read this entire chapter of the book of Leviticus as we have this morning, it doesn't seem to be talking about anything akin to the American War of Independence. The liberty that is spoken of is not liberty from a political tyrant like George III at all. It's liberty under God to be free from slavery and debt and other forms of oppression. And so does it not at least on the surface appear that you have, as so many liberal preachers do today, the taking of a verse of the Bible out of context because it happens to have the right words in it to say what you, in a preconceived way, have already decided that you want to say. 
No, as a matter of fact, that isn't true at all. I know that it has that appearance. But I think a little bit of study, first, of the book of Leviticus, and then secondly, of Puritan theology, will point out to us the great appropriateness of the inscription on the Liberty Bell. In Leviticus chapter 25, we have instructions for the sabbatical year and for the jubilee year in Israel. The sabbatical year is spoken of up to the seventh verse of chapter 25, and there we learn that land, the land of Canaan, Palestine was to observe a holy Sabbath every seven years, even as the congregation observed a holy Sabbath every seven days. The earth was not created, God says, for man to exhaust its powers for man's own ends. God is the sovereign Lord over the use of the earth. And the earth is consecrated to God's ends, not just man's. Even the soil is to be regenerated every seven years. The regeneration that God promises his people is not just some kind of internal piety, some kind of internal hope of heaven, finally, but it's a regeneration of all things, including the very soil under their feet. So the earth was not created for man to exhaust its powers, nor was man created for uninterrupted labor, but rather man was created for the peaceful enjoyment of the rewards of his labor which come, it turns out, not by his own efforts in the end, but by the grace of God. And so man enjoys the grace of God every seven years, resting for an entire year in the Lord, thanking him for the increase that the Lord has given, thanking him for the salvation the Lord has given, thanking him for the land which the Lord has given. See, every seven years pointed to the fact that everything that man enjoys is given by God. Man is to enjoy a total redemption. The redemption that God gave to Israel applied to man, it applied to animals, it applied to plants, it applied to the earth itself. It was nothing less but a symbol of the restoration of everything. It was, to put it in New Testament terminology, a symbol of the new heavens and the new earth. Every Sabbath year reminds us that redemption is total. And then in verses 8 to 12 of Leviticus 25, we read of the keeping of the Jubilee year. Actually, the Jubilee two years, it turns out, because the Jubilee was the 49th and 50th years in the cycle. Every seven years brought a Sabbath year. And every seven sets of seven brought a Jubilee year on top of the last Sabbath year. And so you have a two-year rest in the Jubilee. And it's a beautiful truth, sadly missed by many people who dismiss the Old Testament out of hand as having any authority for New Testament Christians. But it's a beautiful truth that we learn of here that it's on the tenth day of the seventh month that the Jubilee is proclaimed. Why is that important? Well, you have to know the calendar of religious feast in Israel to appreciate that. The tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. The year of Jubilee is proclaimed on the Atonement Day. Only with the full forgiveness of sins can true liberty commence. This liberty that the slaves are now going to enjoy, 
this liberty that the debtors are now going to enjoy, this liberty that the land and the animals and all men are going to enjoy, is a liberty that is grounded not in political give and take, not in anything having to do with the economic schemes of men, but it's a liberty grounded first and foremost in the saving work of God. On the Day of Atonement, the Jubilee is proclaimed. The trumpet blast signalized God uniting with Israel at Mount Sinai. And now on the Day of Atonement, the trumpet blast again commemorates God's gracious presence, announces a year of grace. Indeed, in the Jubilee, two years of grace. And that's why in Ezekiel 46, it's interesting that this is called the year of the trumpet blast, also called the year of liberty the year of liberty. And according to the text before us, if you look at verses 10, 11, and 12, this jubilee year brought liberation by means of restoration. Things are restored to their original condition. It brought restoration and it brought physical rest for man and for animal. And we don't have time to look in detail on all the provisions of the jubilee year, but it's a beautiful chapter. It may have worn on you just a bit, having to read all of it this morning, but you need to do that. You need to put this in context to get a feeling for the bigness of this concept in the eyes of God. The effects of the Jubilee Liberty are detailed in verses 13 to 55. Basically, um, I guess this doesn't cover everything in detail, but as a general principle, we can say that verses 13 to 55 teach that those whose debts are forgiven by God, those who have debts God has forgiven, must now forgive their debtors. Slaves go out, debts are remitted, actual literal financial debts are remitted, the land is given back, and so what you have is the theology of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the effect of Jubilee Liberty. Verses 13 to 34, every man is returned to his own possession. There you see the restoration of possessions. Verses 14 to 17, there will be no oppression by false statements made. In verse 17, obedience will lead to freedom from all anxiety in the land. Verses 18 to 22, God would agriculturally preserve his people. In verses 23 to 28, the land cannot be permanently alienated because it belongs to God. Verses 29 to 34, even houses in the city are to be redeemed. And so here we have every man returned to his possession. At verse 35 up to the 55th verse, we read of the emancipation of slaves. Verses 35 to 38 talks about helping an impoverished brother. Verses 39 to 46 talks of service to fellow Israelites that they are to recover their liberty in the seventh year. And in verses 47 to 55, we have servitude to foreigners talked about and how any Israelite can be redeemed at any time from that. And so, what is the effect of the Jubilee year? A lot of details here, but if we can compact it, the effect is restoration to original conditions and rest from labor in the Lord's own refreshment. In a word, release from every form of oppression, liberty. Liberty in the Jubilee meant release of debts, release of slaves, 
release of encumbered land and houses, and it was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement. When God redeems his people, when God frees them from sin, he frees them from all the effects of oppression as well. As I said, it's a new heavens and a new earth, the restoration of all creation. This is what the Sabbath and the Jubilee years were all about in Israel. They were a beautiful lesson, but one which Israel did not learn. A lesson God wanted to teach about the effects of his kingdom as it comes. How it would renew all of creation, restore everything, and give salvation rest to people. However, Leviticus 26 goes on to say that the violation of these Sabbath rests will bring punishment. It will bring exile from the land so that the land will in the end receive the rest God had ordained for it. If we had time this morning, we could read in 2 Chronicles 36 and especially the 25th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And there it is explained that the Babylonian to become the Persian captivity. The Babylonian captivity was specifically for the sake of restitution of the lost Sabbath years to the land. God explains you will be in captivity for 70 years, one year for every Sabbath you refuse to give back to the land. In Daniel the ninth chapter verse 2, Daniel recalls this explanation for the 70 year captivity and then Daniel in that ninth chapter looks ahead to another 70 Sabbath year cycles, 70 weeks of years. And so Daniel says, we have now seen the punishment for the Sabbath violation, and now we're going to look ahead to a 70 Sabbath year cycle. You see, every seven Sabbath years brought a jubilee. It's a beautiful imagery here. Every seven days, a Sabbath rest. Every seven years, a sabbatical year. Every seven sets of seven years, a jubilee. And so, since every seven Sabbath years, if you will, every seven sets of sevens brought a jubilee, what would 70 years be? 70 such weeks of years would mean 10 jubilees. And if you have 10 jubilees, and the jubilee comes, you see, at the end of the 10th in the cycle, then what you have is the 10th of the 10th. In a word, all of the, uh, of the mathematical imagery here of the Sabbath cycle is in Daniel 9, focus on the coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes, then you will have the jubilee of all jubilees because we are going to have the fulfillment of the 70 weeks of years, the 70 weeks of Sabbaths. And so the Old Testament was teaching that the goal of the Sabbath cycle, the Old Testament, was the new creation that would be brought by the redemptive work and ministry of Jesus Christ. That this redemption would bring regeneration of all things and rest for man. The New Testament confirms that theology, I believe, if you look at Hebrews, the third chapter, verse 7, and the fourth chapter, verse 9. Hebrews 3, 7 says, Wherefore, even as the Holy Spirit saith, Today, if ye shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. 
Like as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me by proving me and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was displeased with this generation and said, You do always err in your heart, in their heart, but they did not know my ways. As I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. And the author of Hebrews says, You take heed, brothers, lest aptly there shall be any of you who has an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. The author of Hebrews warns you against the heart of unbelief so that you will not enter into the Sabbath rest of your God. Hebrews 4 verse 9 says, There remaineth therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The kingdom of God is the great Sabbath of God. It is developing now. Week by week we continue to enjoy the Sabbath looking ahead to the consummation, looking ahead to the new creation when all things are restored, even as the Jubilee year would have instructed us. The Sabbath, in a word, anticipates the restoration of everything in Christ, a restoration that is declared on the Day of Atonement based on the finished work of Christ and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament itself teaches us that the Jubilee was but a foretaste of the redemptive kingdom of Jesus Christ. How can we forget that beautiful, memorable passage of Isaiah, the prophet, chapter 61. There Isaiah says, The Spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me, because Jehovah hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the year of Jehovah's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Jesus' first formal sermon was preached in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. In Luke the fourth chapter we read of this that Jesus went into the synagogue and asked for the Isaiah scroll to be delivered to him. And his text for that morning exhortation, these very words I just read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus read the scripture and in Luke's summary anyway simply said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Of course, they wanted to execute him for making such a broad claim. Jesus said, I will bring the new heavens and the new earth. I will bring the jubilee of jubilees. I will bring the acceptable year of God's redemptive release. I will bring the restoration of all things. I am the Savior that is prophesied of the Old Testament. In John the 8th chapter, I hope that you'll remember that Jesus spoke of the Jews and their pride and their liberty. And he said, you think that you are free, but you're not. You are sons of Satan. You are really bound, slaves of sin. But if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If Jesus Christ releases us, then our slavery will be done away with. In Galatians 5 verse 13, Paul exhorts his hearers to stand firm in that freedom that they enjoy in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Peter says, For freedom you were redeemed. But that doesn't mean you should live lives of excess. You see, freedom in Christ means that we become slaves of the Lord. 
That's why it should not bother us or seem paradoxical that in the 119th Psalm at verse 45, David could say, I will walk at liberty because I keep all of thy statutes. You see, being bound to the word of the Lord, being bound to the law of God is not slavery, though it may appear that way. It is but genuine freedom. In James, the first chapter, verse 25, we are to walk in terms of the perfect law of liberty. The law which liberates men because it's a law of God. Well, much more could be said. But I hope you understand now the theology of the Sabbath, the Sabbath cycle, the Jubilee year, and how the whole scripture testifies to the fact that that was pointing to Jesus Christ, the liberation that comes in him, and how that brings liberation and restoration for all of creation. Let's turn now back in history and just recall the origins of this particular land that we call the United States of America. Differences of political opinion were at the heart of the English Puritan quarrels with the Stuart monarchy in the 1600s. There was a clear recognition that the nature of this political conflict was theological in nature, that it was induced because there were differences of outlook on the nature of God, salvation, and the kind of lifestyle God required of men. Those theological conflicts leading to political conflicts with the monarchy led the leaders of the Puritans in England to organize an exodus to the new world where a state could be established that conformed to Puritan theology. The Puritan political practice in the colonies is but a lasting monument of their appreciation that the scriptures are the whole counsel of God and that this counsel is to be realized in every aspect of man's individual experience and corporate life. And so the Puritans came to the new land to found a country which would be true to the scriptures, a country, you see, established on a reformed world and life outlook. The idea that the state was somehow beyond the reach of the claims of the Bible was absolutely abhorrent to those Puritans. For you see, they found in Scripture the origin and the form and the functions of human government. And in that way, the Puritans could be distinguished from the Romanists on the one hand in their day that believed the state was under the authority of the Pope, and the secularists like Paine and others actually in another generation. But the secularist, uh, growing group of secularists who believed that matters of statecraft were to be separated from religion altogether. The Puritans didn't see things that way. For them, their theology had political ramifications. They believed first and foremost in the sovereignty of God. And because they believed that God was sovereign, they believed that his decree gave to earthly rulers their positions, their powers, and their functions. And if that were true, then all ministers in the state, all magistrates in the state, excuse me, were to be ministers of God, even as Paul said in Romans 13. And as ministers of God, they were bound to execute God's laws for maintaining law and order. They were bound to exercise God's rule through society so there would be an atmosphere for godly living in the propagation of the gospel. 
government when it's seen as powers derived from God, not first and foremost from the people. Government must be ordained for the realization of God's purposes then, not for secular purposes, not for the majority's interest, but for the purposes of God. And so even though rulers in the early days of this country were elected by the people, and even though the people had powers in the legislative process, even though there was the opportunity to uh, take out of office people who didn't do what the population roundabout thought they should, the fact of the matter is that the magistrate was seen as first primarily answerable to God, not the people. Because God's law stood above both magistrate and people. God's law was to be the rule of rulers and the ruled. God's law was the revealed guide for all the affairs of life, including the conduct of civil government. And so God's sovereignty made a difference in Puritan political thought. Man's depravity did as well. Puritans did not trust men. They did not want men writing their own laws. As John Cotton once said, the more any law smells of man, the more it smells bad. He doesn't want laws that smell of men. He wants laws that are very close to, if not identical, with the laws of God. Man's depravity led the Puritans to see in human government the need for checks and balances. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And therefore, power was not to be absolutized in anybody, but spread, divided. There were to be checks and balances. The Puritans recognized the need of gracious redemption for man, realized that men were not adequate in themselves. They needed the outside intervention of God to make their lives right. And so the Puritans rejected all forms of autonomy. They rejected all forms of uh, self-interest and independence of spirit. We are always to show that we are dependent upon God. They believed in a disciplined life of holy gratitude to God for what he had done. And they believed the scriptures were to be the only rule of faith and the practice of faith. And so in a country that they founded, where faith and the standard of faith was to be recognized, the practice even of human government, the practice of civil rule, was to be governed by the same standard of the scriptures. You see, the Puritan conception of liberty was not that of secular democracy today. The reason we read the inscription on the Liberty Bell and we say, well, boy, maybe they just took advantage of some words in the Bible, is we don't see how integral their political concept of liberty was to their understanding of salvation and liberty. And because it's not integral to us, we think there's something wrong here. But it was integral to them. In our day and age, the state is separate from religion, separate from the Bible. And if Christians have anything to say at all, they can only say in the softest of echoes what they hear round about them, or else they are called down as violating the American conception of statecraft. That's ridiculous. The American conception of statecraft is grounded in the Word of God and in the Puritan experiment in the New World. And that Puritan conception of liberty was grounded in redemption. It was grounded and their understanding that they lived under the sovereign hand of God. C. Greg Singer has, re has written a book, A Theological Interpretation of American History, in which he indicates these things. I'd like to give you a few of his words before we close this morning. 
Dr. Singer says, the Puritans held to a very different conception of liberty from that which is so prevalent in contemporary thought and government theory. For the Puritan, liberty was in no way associated with the doctrine of natural law and natural rights, but found its origin and meaning in that covenant which God had made with his people. Liberty was not a natural right, but a God-given right and privilege to be zealously guarded from despots, to be sure, but also subject to precise, biblically defined limits. Their view of liberty received its classic definition in an address which John Winthrop gave to the General Court of Massachusetts in 1645. The quote is too long to reproduce here. Basically, what Winthrop said is there's two views of liberty. One is a natural view, if you will, animal liberty, where you can just do whatever you want. He says that will destroy government. The other view is that liberty is under law and therefore cannot lead to destruction of civil governments, but means that you submit to the law of government just so that you might be free. And then Sanger continues, it need hardly be emphasized that Puritan political theory was far from being democratic. And then he quotes John Cotton. Democracy I do not conceive that God ever did ordain as a fit government either for church or for commonwealth, Cotton said. If the people be governors, who shall be governed? As for monarchy and aristocracy, they are both of them clearly approved and directed in scripture, yet so as referreth the sovereignty to himself and setteth up theocracy in both as the best form of government in the commonwealth as well as in the church. And then Singer comments, they did not believe in a government by the people, but they did believe in a government for the people. God's government was for the people, but not by them. They saw in democratic philosophy, with its emphasis upon the sovereignty of the people, a fundamental contradiction to the biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God. They clearly perceived that democracy was the fruit of humanism and not the Reformation concept. John Winthrop also reminded his fellow citizens of Massachusetts that a doctrine of civil rights which looked to natural or sinful man as its source and guardian was actually destructive of that very liberty which they were seeking to protect. In a word, he was saying, if you turn over government and the protection of your liberty to unsaved men, you're going to destroy the liberty that you want. True freedom can never be found in institutions which are under the direction of sinful men, but only in the redemption wrought for man by Jesus Christ. Christ, not man, is the sole source and guarantee of true liberty. Puritanism as a continuing influence in American political life would have much to say to those who in 1787 sought to erect a constitution for the young republic, but it could only sit in judgment upon those who seek to transform that republic into a democratic state under the banners of a secular humanism that would mock every tenet of the political thought of those who forged the first governments for the Massachusetts Bay and the other colonies. He's absolutely right. You see, our discomfort that there is a sabbatical jubilee year inscription on the Liberty Bell is a rebuke to us that our minds have been secularized as well. That we have failed to see that the Puritans would rise up in judgment on our generation. That though we enjoy the liberties they have bequeathed to us, we have violated the very spirit and foundation of that freedom. The Puritan conception of liberty was not secular democracy. It was theocratic.
It believed that the redemption brought by Christ and the total rule of God in our lives, including submission to his law, was the only way to walk at freedom. Well, the New England Puritans, as I say, came to this country for the express purpose of setting up a commonwealth which would give full expression to their reformed world and life view. At the heart of their political philosophy, at the heart of their political activities, was a theology. The theology that's inscribed on the Liberty Bell. Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all the inhabitants because the redemptive release of God has come. A theology where one could find precious relief and stimulus in the doctrine of redemptive freedom under God's rule. That very theology of the Sabbath passages. Puritanism was a theological interpretation of life, an interpretation of all of life, including political affairs. And so this 4th of July weekend, I want you to have the spirit of the Liberty Bell. Not because it's cracked, I don't want you to act like that, I want you to have the spirit of the theology that the bell itself is inscribed with. Proclaim liberty throughout the land. What does proclaiming liberty mean for us today? Well, at least two things. Proclaiming liberty means that we have to declare the true and only ground of liberty to be the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. If we really want to have the spirit of the 4th of July, then you need to be extremely evangelistic because people cannot be free if they are still in bondage to sin. And so proclaiming liberty means declaring true and only ground for liberty to be found in Christ's work. And secondly, it means we must do, maybe begin to do, certainly restore the doing of those things which give concrete expression to and preserve the effects of that liberty that redemption brings. We need to do those things that show that we are free people and that we want to guarantee freedom to others. One of the ways in which the early colonists did that is they proclaimed their liberty against the tyranny of the king. As free men in Christ, they had the right to be protected by law. And when the king would not protect them by law, they applied their covenant theology to the king. They said, since you have broken the covenant, we are not bound by your covenant. And that is the Declaration of Independence. In fact, that is far more the substance of that declaration than are the memorable words of its preface. And so the early colonists, wanted to live out their freedom concretely in all areas of life, including politics, we must do that as well. Are we proclaiming liberty throughout the land when we settle for what the IRS is doing to us and to our neighbors today? Do we proclaim liberty throughout the land when we settle for the bureaucratic regulations which are stifling the lives of people and keeping institutions and individuals from doing what is their God-given vocation? Do we proclaim liberty throughout the land when we don't insist upon the local right and authority of states and governments such as our counties and cities? Do we proclaim liberty when we allow the federal government more and more to encroach upon the rule that belongs to lower authorities? Do we proclaim liberty throughout the land when we settle for the crime right that keeps people not free but locked up in their homes and fearful of what may happen if they venture out into our society? Do we proclaim liberty throughout the land when we allow millions of unborn children to be executed 
in an ungodly fashion year by year? Do we proclaim liberty throughout the land when the Christian schools and churches of our land are struggling for their lives against the state more and more every day? Do we proclaim liberty throughout the land when we live as slaves of sin? When we live lives that are filled with financial debt? Lives that don't show the freedom of forgiveness to those who have wronged us? We could go on and on. My friends, I'm saying, are we living in terms of the freedom that Christ has given to us? Now this 4th of July is not just a time to sit back in smug satisfaction praising God that we still, even in our secular age, are enjoying the fruits of the Puritan beginnings of this land. It's a time to renew ourselves for what freedom demands as well. To proclaim evangelistic freedom in Jesus Christ and then to start doing the works of free people in our lives. The national hymn that uh, was chosen for the first centennial of the United States of America God of our fathers, whose almighty hand. It's a fantastic hymn. I close with the words of the second verse. Thy love divine hath led us in the past. In this free land by thee our lot is cast. Be thou our ruler, guardian, guide and stay. Thy word our law. Thy paths our chosen way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the great jubilee of jubilees has come. We thank you that your Son, Jesus Christ, has deigned to be our Messiah, our Savior, our Liberator. We thank you that we are no longer slaves of sin, that we are no longer bound to our sinful natures no longer bound over for an eternity in hell and alienation from you. How we thank you that we enjoy freedom to live before you with the prospect of being your sons and daughters for all eternity because of the freedom Jesus Christ has granted. Lord, we pray that we would enjoy this liberty, that we would praise you for it, and that we would live in terms of it. Lord, we pray that if our freedom is exercised under your sovereign hand, that if we find ourselves slaves of your word as the genuine form of liberty, that we would begin to live out our freedom concretely as Christians in all walks of life. Lord, we pray that our theology would be foundational for everything we do in this world, whether it be financial, whether it be recreational, whether it be political. Lord, we pray that your word would guide us in all walks of life. And Lord, we pray for our country. Oh Lord, how we pray that you would restore it from straying so far from that theology that gave it its early enjoyment of freedom. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness and patience and bearing with us so long and putting a fist up to the heavens and declaring our independence of you as a foundation of independence in our own individual lives and in the life of our state. Lord, we pray you would forgive our country for its attempt to be autonomous. We pray you would forgive our country for the secular humanism which has grown so massively like a cancer round about us. 
And Lord, we pray that you would make us those who would indeed proclaim true liberty throughout the land today. That our country might be restored to you and honor the King of Kings. Lord, make this 4th of July a special event in our lives, individually and corporately. A time for turning around and for recognizing that liberty is found only in you. For we pray in the precious name of our liberator, Jesus Christ. Amen.